A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Radio. Let's get into this. This week's podcast is brought to you as always by Aussie Strength. They have been a great sponsor for the podcast since the very beginning and they've been doing some very interesting business these last few months, setting people up in their own home gyms. They also do, you know, the gyms inside Connexes, you know, those like shipping containers for military and police law enforcement units and they also kit out big gyms globo type gyms um so go and check out aussie strength check out their website i know they're starting to get some more equipment in so uh check them out and we're also brought to you this week by the whs experts whs Yes, experts. And they've been working all through this uh, lockdown, through this pandemic, providing placement staff, consultants, contractors to companies in support of their work health and safety requirements. So check out WHS Experts. This week on the show, we have Rabia Sadiq. So Rabia is a human rights lawyer. She's an ex-British Army officer. And now she's an author and a motivational speaker. Rabia was involved in a hostage incident in 2005 in Basra where she was part of a negotiation team to try and facilitate the freedom of two SAS soldiers. And what happened is the talks broke down, unruly mob took over the police station and Rabia was then held hostage uh, with the other facilitators as well as a four-man SAS team. And other than the fact that Rabia was beaten, she was humiliated and amongst other things which she'll tell you about in front of the group, that wasn't actually the the test for Rabia ultimately, although she thought it was at the time. The test came around 18 months later when she took the British Ministry for Defence to the highest court in the country to try and secure some acknowledgement that she was even there that day, that she'd been part of the reason that the guys were released. Now, it's a really interesting story because Rabia didn't set about to do that because she wanted to be a pain in the ass. She wanted to show that she wasn't being treated the same way because she was a woman and that there wasn't any equality within the system. The institution itself closed ranks on Rabia after the trip. Now, I think it's a really important episode because Rabia, first of all, is a very strong woman 
who who went through a harrowing ordeal and came out the other side of it uh, the stronger for it, but also because it shows that we need to treat everyone the same. There should be no favoritism when it comes to leadership. When you start to show favoritism, then the institution breaks down. And in this case, Rabia was part of that institution breaking down because she was treated differently. It was actually a leadership problem right from the very start. Anyway, sit back, relax. I'm not sure what it is that you do when you're listening to the podcast. I can only assume that you're out running, riding, maybe you're at the gym, perhaps you're driving to work or taking the family on a vacation. Well, it would be a very short drive at the moment, wouldn't it? But whatever it is that you do while you're listening to the podcast, um, if you've got time, jump on and leave us a review. There's been some great cracking reviews coming up the last few weeks. I've been really enjoying reading them. Yeah, and maybe tell a friend because, you know, actually that is how this podcast will grow and grow and grow is by more people listening to it and getting something out of the content and also messaging me through Instagram and telling me what they'd like to hear. So, yeah, that's the only thing I ask really for you to do is chuck on a review if you've got the time, tell a friend about the podcast, and just keep supporting it. Righto, let's get into Rabia's story. So, Rabia Sadiq, welcome to the Warrior You podcast. I'm super excited to be talking to you after a couple of years of threatening that I was going to have you on. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for reading over my leadership book and hopefully providing some sort of feedback or praise. That would be very nice of you. I will do that with pleasure. So... How have you been going in this lockdown? Before we get to who you are. Before I get to who I am, um, how have I been going? I suppose a similar journey to a lot of people. Mm. I think from a business and a professional perspective, it was quite a shock initially. You Mm. know, um, uh, 25 years as as a humanitarian lawyer and then eight years ago I started up my own legal consultancy and speaking business Mm. and this year was set to be my record year after you know Mm. lots of years of working hard and um, building up my expertise and my client base and it was it was a year where I was really going to be launching um, on a major scale internationally and had quite a few international trips um, and clients confirmed and then to face a situation where within 24 hours, six figures worth of business just evaporated. That was quite a shock. Mm. Uh, what was interesting was, you know, within within the space of a couple of hours when it became quite real to me what the initial personal impact was going to be from a financial and a business point of view, there was the initial spiral. So, you know, I know we'll be probably talking about leadership and resilience and how training and discipline stands you in good stead but Mm. you're still a human being deep down and you can't you can't protect yourself and shield yourself from some of those natural human reactions and I remember this feeling of shock and overwhelm and in the space of a number of hours spiraling as I was grappling with and getting my head around what this could mean for me my family but then Then I think at some point, and people like us are quite fortunate in terms of the lived experience we have and the training and the discipline we've been fortunate to have received, at some point you make a choice Mm. and that conditioning comes in. And within a few hours I realised that actually the panic and the chaos 
and the overwhelm wasn't serving me well and wasn't going to change the situation. So you go, you know, you get to that point pretty quickly of the acceptance of the reality. Mm. And this is what it is and I can't control that. So what can I control? And I can control how I respond to this and manage this Mm. and perceive this. And I think for me, the critical point came when I asked myself, how can I be of service? Mm. And that changed everything for me. From then on, I could view it differently. You know, how can I be of service first and foremost to my nearest and dearest, my husband, who I knew would be impacted, who was already getting impacted as an emergency um, medical practitioner? How could I support him? How could I support my three young children whose worlds were about to be turned upside down? Triplets. And then, triplets, that's right, 11-year-old triplets. Which is boys. actually what you were really worried about being stuck at home with. <laughs> <laughs> didn't realize that that was going to become a reality soon after. Um, and, and then, you know, how can I be of service to my clients and those with whom I have built wonderful trusting relationships because they're going to be hurting far more than me. And that changed everything for me. So then began the journey of, well, how can I continue to be of service and be of value and bring value and impact in a way that is now accessible in mm. our new normal? And that's been interesting and it's been challenging and it's been quite exciting. Um, Mm. But along the way, you know, you have speed bumps and you have good days and bad days. And I think for me, one of the biggest personal challenges has been the identity shift that I've gone through of being, you know, most of my adult life, certainly um, um, all my life as a parent, being a working parent and being someone who's derived a huge amount of definition from my job and my my profile, I guess, Mm. and turning that on its head and and realising that actually my place at the moment primarily was to serve my family. Mm. Then those, you know, outside the inner circle, um, it's been very humbling. I'm not sure if you've got to it yet, but there's a a chapter in in the book that we were talking about that I've written about wearing your body armour and not yet. You will. Not yet. You will. And it's interesting what you just said then about, you know, how you wear a persona and you have how you've got this certain personality and everyone expects you to have it and, and you live and breathe it. And then, and then when that's taken away from you, that can become quite confronting actually. And now you've got Absolutely. to reinvent yourself for the new, the new normal. Yeah, and I guess I probably wouldn't um, use the term reinvent, although I absolutely know what you mean from that. Mm. I think for me what that has involved is going even deeper and confronting truths and asking asking myself even more difficult questions than perhaps you would have, I would have had to, had, you know, we not all had to face mm. um, the new paradigm. Yeah. So, Rabia, although you grew up, well, grew up, you were born in Perth, grew up a little bit in India, I think. Is that right? I've got that right. Yeah. So I, I was born in Perth. My my mm. dad um, used to fly mm. um, with Air India. My dad's Indian. My mum's Australian. Mm. And dad literally swung a trip back to Australia um, so that they could facilitate my birth in Australia. Um, there you that's go. what you call prior planning and preparation, right? And you, um, and you, you wouldn't so, be. But I went back to India when I was very young, when I was, you know, just a couple of months old. So I actually mm. lived my early years up until the age of five in India. And then as a family, we immigrated to Australia and I did my schooling and uni years here in Australia. And then you moved to London, which, or England, which we'll talk about in a moment. But you, you're probably more well known in the UK than you are in Australia, I assume. 
well known. That's an interesting term. Uh, I, guess <laughs> I, spent, I spent most of my career in the UK. So, yeah, yeah, a large part of the majority of my legal and, of course, military career was in the UK. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is what I want to get to, and you know I want to get to it at some point. But um, yeah, you are you are well well known there because you did take on the establishment because of the way that they were not only treating you, but but perhaps they were on a journey where they weren't quite as advanced as what perhaps Australia is at this point um, with equality. In fact, you went through a fairly tumultuous period yourself in our Jamiat hostage crisis. Our is am I saying that right? Yeah, you are. Well yeah, and um, we've talked about you talking about this before, and I'd, I'd love for the audience to hear, you know, someone as amazing as yourself talk about that hostage crisis and and your part in that, and then your and then the way you were dismissed after it, and then finally how you had the redemption, I guess, and fought your way back. Yeah, crack on. <laughs> uh... So as I said, you know, I did my schooling in my university years mm. here. I was very lucky to to grow up in, you know, a very peaceful, healthy part of the world like Perth. But I guess because of my background, being a migrant's kid and seeing mm. the the obstacles and the challenges that particularly my dad faced in the in the in the 70s and 80s here in Australia at a very different time. I had that very early sense of social justice and I think that's what led me into the law. That and, you know, a fairly life-changing experience that I has a ki- had, had as a kid as, as being a victim of child sexual abuse, which we know is a very common story for many people, one in three in Australia. So that's kind of the two things that um, really informed a lot of my decisions early on and led me to the law. And I always knew from an early stage that my calling was was quite a significant one. I knew that I wanted to work with people that had never experienced justice and I knew that the law was a vehicle through which I hoped that I could become the voice for the voiceless. Mm. It was always those that were marginalised that um, I was passionate about serving. So that led me in the late 90s to leave Australia, as you said, and to head for the UK. I was hoping to be able to practice in the area of humanitarian law, having done some human rights and criminal law work back here in Australia. And I was working for a number of years as a private legal practitioner and I was volunteering for a number of human rights agencies. And I was getting frustrated because I was nowhere closer to doing that sort of frontline work that I so desperately wanted to be involved with. And then I decided on a whim um, that I was going to take six months off and go on a community aid expedition to South America. So that's what I did in 1999. And that kind of changed everything because that exped was supported by the British forces. And some of the closest friendships I made during that six-month expedition were some of the army officers Mm. uh, that I was travelling with. And one of them in particular who became my lifelong best mate, he sowed the seed. And I think he knew me better than I knew myself back then. And he thought for a whole variety of reasons that becoming a military lawyer would be a really good fit for me in terms of my commitment to service, um, you know, the the calling that I had, the people that I wanted to help, those that had experienced such terrible abuses but lived in parts of the world where they were invisible. And also I had this kind of adrenaline streak, adrenaline junkie streak. (laughs) So he was he was pretty clever. He he um, he made 
um, a career in the military look very, very attractive. And some months later, after I finished the expert and returned to the UK, I decided to apply to commission as an officer. I was extremely surprised and um, fortunate to go through the, the selection process. Uh, and they say timing is everything because by the time I went through the process, um, I finished my military training and I commissioned the week of 9-11. As a, as a captain, as a, as a special service officer? That's right. That's right. As yeah. a, I think you call it special. Yeah, special um, service special officer here. Service mm. officer here in Australia. In the UK, mm. they call it a professionally qualified officer. Mm. So that was commissioning as a captain, yep. Mm. And that was the week um, of 9-11, wow. which of course changed everything. Mm. Um, so sort of fast forwarding to in sort of through my military career, surprisingly, um, as my mate Nathan thought a number of years earlier, the military became a really good fit for me. Um, it was a lifestyle that I loved, the, the sense of belonging and camaraderie. And from a very early stage, I had the opportunity to serve and be involved in the most incredible um, impactful areas of law that I wanted to practice in. Mm. And late 2004, I got a call out of the blue asking me or advising me that I'd been selected for a pretty big role and that was to deploy with the British forces as their sole legal support back in those days. Um, mm. I was really shocked because there was lots of, lots of colleagues and officers far more senior and experienced to me that should have got that call, I thought. I would be the first female to carry out that role and that was fairly significant in itself given yeah. the culture. Mm. Um, so, But I saw that as an incredible opportunity and gift and one that I wasn't going to waste. So I spent the best part of 2005 in Iraq and I think I was really fortunate and maybe this was some of the reasons why I was selected when I was to carry out the role um, because I had that Muslim and that cultural background. So the people that I was going to serve, their background, their culture wasn't foreign to me. There was a familiarity and an empathy. I think also I was by that stage as a slightly older officer, I was very clear about my values and why I had come to this work yeah. and this opportunity that I was given, which was obviously to support the allied forces, but very much also to support and to work alongside the Iraqis in helping them reestablish law and order in their country. Yeah. And I think because I was very clear about that and I would, I would say with all humility that I was authentic and respectful in the way that I served, I was able to build really good relationships with my Iraqi colleagues quite early on. And I guess I feel that it's important to explain that so that the listeners can understand why yeah. fast forward several months into my tour in Iraq, I then became involved in the incident that you referred yeah. to earlier. It's really important context. And I, I yeah. saw this myself in Afghanistan where not only the lawyers but some of the NGOs, we would quite often think to ourselves, oh, well, they don't understand the mission. Actually, they were the mission in a lot of ways. And I yeah. think that in some in some ways the combat elements had priorities a little bit askew and i think i think that was that's a good context to sort of launch um into what happened next yeah yeah you've you've put that very well actually it became quite clear to me from within the first few months in iraq that i was going to be playing a fairly pivotal role and one that i had underestimated and not fully understood 
So I guess because I had this ability to um, build some very good relationships and some key relationships with some of the Iraqi officials that we were working with, my role then took on a much bigger one than just legal support. I was doing a lot of information and intelligence gathering. I was gaining us access to places and people that we hadn't been able to access before. Um, half by sort of by about the July August of 2005, the environment in Iraq, the operating environment, changed and deteriorated rapidly. By that stage, um, the NGOs and the Red Cross were forced to pull out. So then I had an additional role. I became one of the only human rights inspectors in the south of the country. So part of my role then morphed into being someone who um, visited and monitored various facilities that we knew were being used to abuse and torture um, and, 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 and uh, murder innocent Iraqis. So that's kind of to give a bit of a flavour of, of, of how this tour kind of developed quite quickly. So that takes us to about the September of 2005. And on the 19th of September, I arrived at my headquarters at Basra Air Base in the south of Iraq fairly early in the morning, as I usually did. And immediately I heard news that two of my colleagues, two British forces soldiers, had been beaten and kidnapped and taken away by a group called the Jaysh al-Mahdi, who were... Uh, how do I describe them? They were an Iranian-backed um, terrorist group, insurgent group, that had completely infiltrated the Iraqi police service at this stage, and they were basically running the country. They had control of the country. They were the ones responsible for most of the kidnappings and murders of innocent Iraqis, mainly Sunnis. And they were also the ones responsible for a lot of the infrared technology and the explosive attacks that were killing thousands of Iraqis and hundreds of um, uh, military personnel in the country at the time. Mm. So we knew this was pretty bad. This was, this was bad. Mm -hmm. uh, we later heard that they had been taken to this place called Al Jamiat, which was officially the headquarters of the Iraqi police service in the south. Unofficially, it was also the headquarters of this insurgency group. And I knew that this was particularly bad because in my new role as a human rights inspector, I knew that this was the main place that people were taken and tortured mm. and not seen again. Mm. Up to 300 innocent Iraqis were held at this place at any one period in time. But what could I do about this? This wasn't my area of expertise. This was not what I was trained for because I was the lawyer, right? I was just the lawyer. Um, mm. So I listened with concern as events were unfolding and, and by now I, I've been promoted to the rank of major. So I'm a major by the time I deployed to Iraq. And a good mate of mine, a colleague of mine, who was the same rank as me, his, name, his name's James, um, he was a career soldier, infantry officer, and he was uh, responsible for a lot of the surveillance operations. And he was ordered by our commander, our brigadier, to go into Al Jamiat with a group of his men to conduct what you and I would call the recce um, for people that don't understand that term. You know, a bit of a, a search and see, find out what the lay of the land is and report back. Um, he was also told if he could somehow sneak out free, negotiate the release of our two guys, that's what he was to do as well. So he went off and about an hour later, he sent a report back to our headquarters. And he had basically explained 
the situation. And the situation was that by the time he'd arrived at Al Jamiat, um, the Iraqi government had sent a judge along as their representative and he'd had various conversations with this judge and basically it became clear that the judge had no interest in speaking to James or letting him see our colleagues or even to discuss their fate. He said he didn't trust him, he didn't know him and that that wasn't going anywhere. So James kind of kept talking to him and said, well, who who is it that you would speak to? Who do you trust? Who might I be able to send so we can progress this along? The only one of you that, that I will speak to is Major Rabia, mm. which is what the Iraqi colleagues that I worked with called me. So this is the message James sends back to our headquarters via his radio. So on the strength of that, our commander comes in, my brigadier comes in, and he orders me to jump on the back of a helicopter and to go on my own into Basra City to Al Jamiat, this police station, to take over from James Crazy. for what we now understood to be hostage negotiations. That's crazy. I was petrified. Mm. I knew <laughs> that this was not what I was trained for. I yeah. was not a trained hostage negotiator. I was already immediately assessing all of the risks and all of the ways that this could go horribly wrong mm. and the impact of what could happen if it went horribly wrong. Mm. And while this was all running through my head and I was thinking, this is wrong, this is wrong in so many ways, mm. suddenly my dad's words popped into my head. And dad was a, is a pretty wise man. And he used to say to my brother and I as we were growing up, he used to talk about character a lot. Mm. And he used to say to us, you know, kids, there'll be times in your life where you'll be called upon to step outside of your comfort zone and to do something uncomfortable for the greater good. And you will know those times and the decisions that you make in those moments will define your character. Mm -hmm. And you know when you're young, those words, when you're young and you're arrogant and you think you know it all and you haven't really lived a life, those they're just, words don't They're just words. Difference. They're just words. So you say, thanks, cheers, Dad. Yeah. And you don't give them a second thought. Mm. And for some reason, those words popped into my head when I needed them the most. And I, for the first time in my life, understood what Dad was talking about. Mm. And it was a moment like this. Yeah. And I realised the reality. And the reality was, like it or not, risks or not, danger or not, the lives of my two colleagues, my mates now depended on me. This is Rabia's test now. That's what it Sorry? is. This is Rabia's test. That's what this is. Yeah. 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 Mm. I'm being called upon to do something that's mm. really uncomfortable and scary, mm. but for the greater good. For the greater what, good. What greater good could there be than, than the lives of your colleagues, your friends? So you jump on a, I assume, a Lynx helicopter or something similar. Yeah. Get. So I jump so I jump on the on the helicopter and I'm choppered in. It's about a 15, 20 minute mm. um, flight, longest flight of my life as you can imagine. Mm. And by the time we I'm, arrive I'm, I'm imagining you in like the old the old flak body armor with the big side bits and probably uh, probably juggling your rifle and a helmet that doesn't fit and and but yeah, pretty mm. much. You've got to, you know, that, that motley scene in your head is, is not, mm. not, you know, that, that mm. inaccurate. You know, mm. we, were, we were still in the fairly early stages. We didn't have enough kit still at that stage. You know, there's a lot of... There's a lot of um, oh, you'd look um, like... You, you would look like every defence minister I've ever seen coming off the back of an aircraft in, in a war <laughs> zone. Not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my helmet was a little bit big for me. 
Um, by then, I'd got a bit more comfortable with carrying around my rifle, but still, you know, prayed every day that I wouldn't have to use it. Um, but yeah, you know, I didn't cut a. a oh well, it was an it was an SA eighty. I've no doubt. So it was an SA eighty. So absolutely, I didn't cut a very. They are. That can be said. They 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 are brutal when you throw them at the enemy. The SA eighty. <laughs> Well, you know what? We always joke that if, if the likes of people like us got in trouble, we'd probably throw it and run the other way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, all jokes aside, that would, that'll probably always be the longest helicopter yeah. ride of my no life. No doubt. Mm, terrifying. And um, as we were ho- hovering over the compound, as we, as we got to Al Jamiat and, and the pilot was looking for a safe place to land i remember looking down and being completely overwhelmed by this scene that i was greeted with that we weren't prepared for Mm. what had happened is the terrorist police officers inside that were holding our boys prisoner they had leaked this bogus story out into the community that they had captured and were seizing and holding israeli spies of course Mm. because they knew the impact that that would have and that would be to whip up a local frenzy which is absolutely what it did so by the time that we arrived there, there was probably about 200, 250 local civilians mm. gathered around the compound and probably about 100 British soldiers that had been sent to try and keep them calm to stop a riot situation from erupting. And they were fairly volatile and angry and were firing their weapons in the air because, as you know, in the Middle East, in Iraq, places like Iraq, everybody is armed, like some countries we know of now. Mm. Um, and I remember they were throwing rocks and glass at the, at the soldiers that had been sent to try and keep them calm. So we landed nearby and I somehow managed to jostle my way through this pretty angry crowd. And we got, and I got to the front gates of the compound of Aljamiat where James was waiting for me. And I knew the instant that I looked at him, that things were not going well, because despite his training and being a career soldier, I looked up at him and the colour had drained from his face mm. and he was he was sweating and he didn't look great and he managed a bit of a smile to try and comfort me, which was of little comfort. And he took me in and ushered me to this kind of makeshift office where this judge, this Iraqi government representative, had been waiting for a while for me. And we went in and I immediately greeted the judge. I... I met him a few times before in the preceding months. Mm. And after we exchanged some pleasantries and now I'm having to speak in my very poor Arabic because our military interpreter had become overwhelmed. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Old and was suffering from shock mm. and uh, traumatic stress, and he had left the scene. So now I'm on my own without an interpreter. So the situation is deteriorating and changing rapidly. And after we exchanged a few words, the judge said to me, okay, this, this man, your colleague, he can go now. He wanted James to leave. And, of course, I didn't want that to happen. Mm. I really needed James there as my security blanket. So eventually, after some backwards and forwards, the judge agrees to allow James to stay. But the condition is James must not say a word. Mm. So we agree that compromise. Mm. Within about an hour, I then 
um, I'm able to get the judge to agree to take me to the cell where we understand our two colleagues are being held, which is right down the other end of the compound. Mm. So he takes me to that cell and all the while we're being guarded very closely and flanked by these terrorist police officers who are all armed. Mm. We get to the cell and the big iron door of the cell is opened and we're kind of pushed in and in the far corner I see our two colleagues and they've been beaten, they're bloodied, they've got um, hoods over their heads, their hands and their feet are changed all contrary to international conventions. So immediately I ask for the chains to be removed and the the hoods to be um, taken off their faces, and they are. And, you know, it's really important, and I think it's really relevant to people that might be listening to this now um, in these challenging global pandemic times. It's really important that we try and maintain our sense of humour and we find the humour in all situations, however dire. Mm. And this is probably that moment for, for me and for us because I'll never forget when, when the hoods were taken off the heads of these two guys, these two elite killing machines. Um, they kind of looked up at me and they were completely um, gobsmacked and mm. they had this look on their face that they must have realised, you know, within a few seconds that they had and then they kind of, you know, gathered themselves and nodded and smiled at me and I knew exactly what they were thinking. You know, they were thinking probably along the lines of, holy crap, is this the best the British Army can do for us? I'm surprised one know. of them didn't come come up with, morning, ma'am. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I, 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 I don't think that at that stage they quite gathered themselves. Mm. I think they were still in disbelief that I was the best that the British Army could produce and, you know, if I was, then they were screwed. Mm. And I had some sympathy for that sentiment, quite frankly. Mm. And I remember nodding at them and smiling and trying to say to them without obviously using using so many words, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, lads. Yes, I am. And yes, you probably are. Mm. Um, so, you know, just having that little, it's amazing how if you can just find the funny mm. in anything, how that just breaks the ice a little bit and can help you. Gather yourself. And this story would be so awesome if that was it. If it was like, hey, here we are, like we're gonna take you guys home now, wouldn't it? Yeah, It'd be a great right. story. Well, exactly. You know, and, and, and the way the way that it goes on is exactly how you would hope it would. You know, mm. there's negotiations, mm. um, the judge and I agree a set of conditions, we we were about to sign a contract, and what you would hope would happen next is the men would be given to me and we would get the heck out of there and it would be a triumphant day. But How, that's not what happened. Yeah, however. However, just as we were about to sign the contract, all mm. hell break loose around us. Mm. The crowd outside were now almost 3,000. They had set fire to the soldiers, my colleagues and friends who were there to, to keep them calm. Mm. They stormed the compound. The police officers, the terrorist police officers that were surrounding us, that's all they needed to switch into who they really were. Mm. They threw our colleagues, the two special forces soldiers, back into the corner. Their hoods and their chains were replaced. Myself and James were thrown into another cell Mm. and within about half an hour, four of our other colleagues, four SAS soldiers who had sneaked in, in in the hope that they could they could rescue us. Mm. They were caught. They were thrown in with us. So in our cell, now the judge had fled the scene because he was too too afraid to hang around. So in our secondary cell, there were six of us and I was the only So one. was the judge the only legitimate instrument 
of the government there. The rest was all really corrupted Correct. by um, right. Iranian insurgency. Yeah. Mm. yeah, that's right. He was the only legitimate mm. Iranian representative. And when all this was going down, the judge looked at me and said to me in Arabic, I'm sorry, Major Rabia. He said, you and I, we're no longer in control. And he got his papers, put them in his briefcase, and he ran. Mm. And I never saw him again. Nice. That's when James and I were thrown into a secondary cell and we were joined by four SAS soldiers, colleagues of ours that we'd worked with before. Have you done any interrogation training, any anti-interrogation training? So that sometimes is worse, isn't it? Because now you know what's coming. In this situation, it was worse because my hyper alertness went to a new Mm. level. Because I was playing out all the scenarios of what was likely to happen next. They say a little bit of information is a dangerous thing. Yeah, right. So that's right. So then the six of us in our cell were held for the next eight hours. And as I said, I was the only female. I was the only Arabic speaker, only one with Muslim background, all of which up until that point had served me very well. I bet. But now, of course, in yeah. this very different scenario with the hands of my captors, mm. exactly, I'm a spy, I'm a traitor, mm. I'm a whore, mm. as they called me. And so I became the target of all their anger and their resentment. And mm. so for the next eight hours, while we were held in the cell in front of my colleagues, mm. um, I was subjected to some pretty horrific treatment. I was degraded, humiliated, Mm. tortured. Mm. Um, Yeah. Um, But after eight and a half hours, miraculously, we were all rescued, Mm. um, including our two original guys who'd actually been taken to another location and we got to them just in the nick of time. Mm. And that should be, one would have hoped, Mm. the way that things would have ended, that we would be able to, you know, and that would have been... Tell the tale forevermore yeah. in this triumphant ending where the supposed good guys get to ride off or fly off into the sunset. Yeah, and I know, you know, I know that you, I know the sort of person that you are, Rabia, and that would have been small price to pay for their freedom, I, I guess. You know, you, you're a strong, you know, strong woman, strong person all around, and, and that would have been what it was. But... Um, I would have got through that. I yeah. would have been able to heal and reconcile from that pretty quickly. Yeah, exactly. But it was that, but now the story is the institution goes back to its normal institutional ways and no one gives you any credit for what you were subjected to um, other than the people that were in that room with you. Importantly, never mind the credit, I wasn't given the acknowledgement or the support that I needed after what I went through. Yeah, and, and, and credit they, and credit is credit is acknowledgement and, and support. And absolutely. and you know, a, a hero's a hero's welcome is not what you the sort of person that you are, but but you you know, that still would have been nice too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, they returned the institution closed ranks and showed the very worst of themselves almost instantaneously. Um, you know, we flew back, we were flown back to our headquarters and all of the men, James and all of my special forces um, colleagues, they were all given a, a hero's welcome. Um, they were all given the opportunity for debriefing, as you and I would call it. You know, people out there would understand that to be post-trauma counselling, which was standard procedure after you go through something like this to quickly start that healing process so you can continue to be of use. So 
everything that you would have expected that I had come to expect, but then I was told to hang back. And then when I was eventually allowed to return to our headquarters, there was no hero's welcome. There was no handshake. There was no pat on the back. I was given a cup of tea. Uh, my commander kissed me. He gave me a kiss on the cheek, which he had never done before, let alone in front of all the headquarters staff, 70% of whom reported to me as well. Wow. So that was hugely embarrassing. Mm. And then he said to me, Sadiq, run along back to your tent. You must be really tired. Don't hurry in tomorrow or the next day. Wow. No debriefing, no acknowledgement, no recognition of what I'd been through, particularly mm. for those eight hours. And he knew mm. he'd been briefed. And I think the silence in, in relation to my existence on that day, mm. in the days and the weeks to come, was not only deafening, but ultimately became my undoing yeah. psychologically. Let's let's talk about that in a moment. Uh, but I want to sort of share with you some of my insights over the years, and especially since leaving defence and working more with um, other companies, and especially ones that are dominated by by males still to this day. And when, when I go through and do leadership training with, with some of these these other companies, they the men have a real problem with the same issue, presented with the same issue, but now they've got to manage that issue with a female. And it could be exactly the same as, oh, I've got to give performance feedback counselling to this guy. Oh, I've got to give performance feedback counselling to this woman. Yes. And suddenly it's a big deal. And it's not the woman that's making it the big deal. It's this person's – now, I'm assuming that, you know, that the, the, the guys um, that you were working with uh, – what? no, we don't need to mention the unit, but I do know some of the guys from those units, uh, the mechanised unit that you were with. Now, I'm assuming they've never had women in their ranks before and these guys have never had to brief females, let alone manage females or work with females – and then they've got someone like yourself that's been through that incident and how do they now deal with that? They've got no idea. Yeah, um, and what you're saying is largely accurate except for the fact that by that stage I had been attached to that unit for about a year. Mm. I was the only female in the command group but I had served with and gained respect and had a very, I thought, good, productive relationship with those people for mm. the year leading up to that. And I had more than proven myself. Yeah, I certainly don't want to make excuses for them. They don't, they don't no, deserve the no. excuses. Um, so, yes, a year prior they were faced with a slightly unusual situation and maybe for some of them for the first time. Mm. I had more than proven myself and I thought that we had a really productive, healthy, respectful working relationship, not only with my commander, but with all of those that I had served with um, at, in, you know, at, that, at that level, at that headquarter command level. And after that incident... It became more painful and shocking to me because everything seemed to, right. to turn on a penny. And after that incident, how long did it take for everything to unravel for you? Are we talking days or weeks? No, we're talking months. Months, okay. So you were still um, over there operating in that capacity. Yeah, so this was September. Mm. I was there till the end of November. Oh, um, it's not that long. Mm. The situation deteriorated rapidly after then and I was involved in several operations after then in, in obviously in a legal advisory capacity. So I really had to mm. um, suck it up and put this to one side because I had to soldier on because things were getting more volatile mm. and I was needed more than ever in a very different capacity because this wasn't now 
a peacetime reconstructed reconstruction phase this is this we were now going back to a very highly volatile situation so very much my role became primarily that of military legal advisor you know and, and, and focusing on um the law of armed conflict mm. um so yeah i had to suck it up and eventually i returned to the uk at the end of 2005 and naively i assumed that the wrongs would be righted then and realizations would be had away from this volatile mm. intense environment and that wasn't to be um essentially the brigade that i was attached to for all of that time and then my corps the army legal services all closed ranks mm. and the more that i questioned my poor treatment and the more that i tried to seek some understanding and some and 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 redress mm. the writing of this wrong which i was clear was a wrong mm -hmm. um the more i was kind of pushed to the outer branded a problem child and everyone closed ranks to the point where even the general in my corps of the army legal services called me aside and said you can't push this anymore if you value your career you'll leave this alone i can see how i can see how that happened and i can see how rumor and innuendo sort of would have fueled that um but the problem is that Every day since you have proven that that's not your character at all. So, so while they were trying to say, "Oh, you're just chasing five minutes of fame or medals or money," and 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 I can see how people would jump on that bandwagon because they do, because people it's an easy bandwagon to jump on. And some people, but some people do do that. You know, some people do say, oh, "I've done this" or "I've done that," and they haven't. And yet, your character has shown every day since then that that's not you at all. So, huh. which is which I think is testament. Truly, testament to the person that you are, and and makes me all the more proud of you for taking on the establishment in the highest court in the land, right? And they knew that. Thank you. That's very humbling for you to say that. But they knew that, and they knew that about me because these were people that I served with, um, mm. and they trusted me and you know intimately. Mm. I was the keeper of a lot of their secrets, mm. um, and I had put myself in harm's way a number of times to do a role that I wasn't trained for, you know, that I wasn't strictly speaking there to do. And I did it for the good of the mission because I genuinely respected these people and felt that we were doing good and we were being of service. And I think that's why for me it hit very hard. Yes, several months later when I heard that James had been awarded a military cross, that hurt. That was insult to the injury. But as mm. you said, it was never about the medals and it was never about um, public recognition because I knew that that would never be an outcome. And that was never something that I um, was hoping for. I just wanted the truth of the matter. All I wanted was my role in that day and what I had done to be reflected in my confidential staff report. To be acknowledged mm. in your, in your no annual, in your annual report. would ever have seen. <laughs> so for I those truth to be reflected you could explain what that is yeah so for those listening in in the in the australian defense force um what rabi is saying is she just wanted it in her pir all right um yeah and are you still friends with with james um woodham now no that's a no. shame mm. no. um i <laughs> when you take when you decide that you are not going to be silenced by an institution and you make the decision to challenge them and to hold them to account, as you would know, um, you rapidly become someone 
that if people choose to keep aligning themselves with you or choose to be your friend, that can be seen as a career-limiting move. Mm. So um, sadly, having having enjoyed a wonderful um, camaraderie and sense of community with a lot of these people, mm. um, I was then mm, uh, ostracised. Passed aside, ostracised, and was pretty much alone, except for, except for, and it's really, I feel very strongly about emphasising this, the greatest humanity and empathy and compassion that I was shown was from the Special Forces soldiers Mm. that I served alongside with that day. Mm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, they would have seen, well, they would have all thought the worst as well, I'm sure, during that eight hours. Um, they would have all thought they were going to die as well, I'm assuming. Oh, we had several conversations to that extent, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you, you, I mean, you know, we're not not to make light of it, you you had a weapon thrust upon you, you had threats made, you were thrown around, physically hurt. And, and sexually denigrated right. in front of all of them. Yeah. Um, I was going to say a, stand, a standard day in the, um, yeah. and you can't, you can't replicate that, that next bit, that not knowing of what might happen next, no matter how much training you've got or how much you think you've been through. Um, for, for those of us that have been through that, you know, um, resistance to interrogation training, no matter how much you think you've been through going through that training, you, you can't replicate what's going to happen next. Um, I wouldn't know because I haven't had the extent of training as you mm, have, mm. but I would imagine that at some point in the back of your mind there is this realisation that this is training. Yeah, there's something there. What I can tell you from Mm. my experience is Mm. that I don't think you can ever fully prepare for how you as a human being are going to react when you realise that this could be the end. Isn't it strange how, or not strange, it's not the right word, you you thought your test that day was to go and and save a couple of Special Forces guys and the test was actually a long way off and was yet to come. Yes. And that, that, that day... Do you, do you feel like going through that helped change the establishment, the, the British military establishment, in the way that they look at, you know, equity and diversity? I'd like to think so. I'd mm. like to think that not only that day and the mistakes that were made with my treatment that day and then the eventual decision that I made almost a year later to, to sue the British forces and the UK government for discrimination and, of course, my hand was forced. You know, I went through a year, 18 months of trying to exhaust every other avenue to address this without it becoming such a big public case. Mm. Um, I think that they were forced to change. Mm. I don't think they necessarily wanted to, to, to change or felt that they needed to, but they were forced to because then this became a very public, this became a landmark case mm. where, you know, I was, my legal team were calling, the case went down in history in some ways because it was the first case of its, of its type to have on its witness list some of the most senior commanders in the British forces, Mm. generals, you know, two- and three-star generals and brigadiers. Mm. Um, And who was I? I was just a lowly legal officer from Mm. another country Mm. with a funny name. Yeah. Um, So I think that they were forced... um, and sadly, sometimes it does mm. take things like court cases for institutions to experience some pain and some embarrassment before they are forced to um, maturing and looking at things from a different perspective. Mm. And I would like to think and I would like to believe 
And from what I know, my case opened up the floodgates for a number of other cases and led to some fairly significant changes in policy and in attitudes and importantly, in culture, the way that women, ethnic minorities were treated mm. and allowed to serve in the forces going forward. Yeah, right. And so, Rabia, what, what do you, where do you see the future now for you after after what you've been through and and the massive hit that you've just taken recently because of the coronavirus as well? Where do you see your your future going with with your business and, and your speaking engagements and the like? Uh, I think. Well, I think I should first say that nothing that happened. I believe that nothing that happens to us in life is an accident, mm. and I think that. As human beings, our choice, our challenge is to see the opportunity and the life lessons in everything that we experience. And what we're all experiencing now is no different. In mm. fact, it's probably one of the most um, um, stark examples of what I'm talking about. So for me, what I went through changed everything. It made me, it made me realise that I was stronger than I ever knew mm. and more resilient than I could have ever imagined. And it made me realise that my values were everything to me mm. and that actually um, serving others is part of my essence. Yep. So I just serve others in another way now. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm not a full-time lawyer anymore. I still do some human rights work, but what I have learnt is that the way things are change, the way things change and the way that we open people's hearts and minds and impact things for the greater good is through the power of stories mm -hmm. because that's how I think in history significant things have been changed by brave people that are willing to stand up and tell their stories. If Love we it. can bring the human face to certain um, ills and, um, and uh, views that have not served us well as individuals or a community, that's how we impact change and progress. Yeah. That's pretty much what my, my career and my calling is now and that will continue. You know, I, I use the power of story, not just my story, but other people's stories to help to help inspire and empower others to be their own change. You're passionate about equity and diversity. What would you say to all the women who are listening that are, are in positions where they're silent and they're not able to speak out or the establishment feels bigger than, than their battle? Yeah, I mean, I think equity and diversity is far bigger than just women and gender. Um, the more I work in this space, the more I realise that there are the gaps between those that have a voice and influence and those that are invisible and voiceless is, is in some ways getting bigger. Mm. Um, so for me, it actually comes, all of it comes back to values-based leadership mm. um, because leadership is, is, is how you define and set the tone for culture. And mm. cu culture is how we treat people and speak about people when we don't think anyone's watching or listening. Wow. But to answer your question, what would I say to those that feel disempowered, that they don't have a voice? Mm. Um, you have a choice. We all have a choice in terms of the battles that we choose to fight and the ones we choose to walk away from, mm. but we all have a sphere of influence. Mm. And if you don't believe that, start by looking at your own relationships and your own homes. Mm. Who are you? Who, who looks up to you? And who are you the role models for? Oh, my God, my kids are burnt doomed. <laughs> well, that's it. You know, mm. we're all partners and mm. children and parents and neighbours and friends and aunts and uncles. And we all have people that look to us. Mm. And when we 
start with those that are nearest and dearest to us. I think we need to ask ourselves, are we living an aligned life? And are we living true to our values in a way where we are honouring those around us? And if the answer to that is no, then that's where we start. Yeah, right. That's very, very We all have a voice, but yeah. we've got to choose when when we use it and to what purpose. I'm not sure if you follow um, Lee Sales at all on Twitter or, yeah. I, I, I just read her book recently. Oh, uh, yeah. I, mm, she's massively inspirational, I think. It's the faceless, dare I say it, men who who continue to push this sexist agenda against her and, you know, for things that aren't even, like they're just opinions and the next minute it's become sexualized. the battle that she must face, and we don't, I mean, I'm a, I'm a guy, I never, I never get that. Like it doesn't happen, you know, and, and so to think that there's people out there that, that do that for fun on Twitter to people like herself, yourself and, and other people, I think is um, utterly disgusting to be honest that's where you've got to choose where you put your time and energy some battles are meant to be fought and some are meant to be given yeah. the attention that they deserve which is nothing i was going to say though it's the the problem's not just whether she puts her time and effort into battling that but it's guys yeah. not calling that crap out as well absolutely absolutely and the more work i do in this space mm. i am convinced that this is this is work that must be done jointly. Mm. This is collective work. Mm. We will not We will not get to a place where there will be equal treatment and fair culture. We've all got to work together. And actually, it is sometimes more powerful in the culture that we work in for men to call out other men in the scenario that you're talking about. Mm. Yeah, which if you think about it, if James had a stood up for you, way back then perhaps you wouldn't be the person you are today so maybe you should thank him for that maybe Rabia Sadiq I want to thank you for for being on the Warrior You podcast your story is is amazing and, and you are someone who I, I look up to and you know I, and I hope that more people here will find out about your your story through the, the podcast maybe and I know you've written a book as well I think it's going to be made into a movie did I hear uh, yeah well am I, I allowed to talk about that or not Maybe not. Well, you can talk about the book. The book is called Equal Justice and it was published by Pan McMillan back in 2013. Mm. And if people want to know more, absolutely. And that's on Amazon, right? Um, Sorry? That's on Amazon, I think. Mm. On Booktopia. Mm. I think it's still in the bookshops once they open up again. Mm. Um, People can get it online. Um, And there there has been some talk and there is some interest in turning it into into a movie, but that is a very slow process. I know, isn't it? Um, and I've got a couple. I've got a couple of um, spots left in my book for people to write. You know, the starts of the chapters. We've got quotes in there, and I'm hoping to get a quote from you about resilience. Mm, just thought sure. I'd drop that on you. <laughs> Let's talk after this, hey. <laughs> hey, thanks, Robbie. I want to thank you very much. Pleasure. Right. Pleasure. Take care. All right. I hope you enjoyed that podcast as much as I enjoyed going through and having the interview with Rabia. Her book is available on Booktopia and through Dimex and Amazon. It's called Equal Justice, My Journey as a Woman, a Soldier and a Muslim. So check it out. Now, if you're still listening to this, then you're part of the End of Podcast Club. And if you send me this code word in a message on Instagram, as well as put up a review, platoon, so that is 
Platoon is the code word you need to send to me to know that you're part of the end of podcast club. And then if you also leave a review on iTunes, if you do that before Friday, you're in the running to win a free Warrior U podcast t-shirt. So again, if you send me a message on Instagram, tell me you're part of the end of podcast club, that this week's code word is platoon. And if you put a uh, review up on iTunes and I match that up, then I'll send you a t-shirt. Will you be in the running to win a t-shirt? I'm at least picking one or eight people. All right. Have a great rest of your week and there'll be another podcast come out on next Sunday. See you guys. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.